help. The human's about to escape. Get your paws off me, you dirty ape! <gasps> he can talk. He can talk, he can talk, he, he can, can talk, talk, he can talk, he can talk, he can talk! I can sing! From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Everyone and welcome to the Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today to discuss everything from chimpanzee to chimpanzee <laughs> is my lovely wife Nakia, also known as the Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. On today's episode, we're sitting down for Nakia's first viewing of the original sci-fi classic Planet of the Apes from 1968. And Nakia, as I mentioned last week, I think Planet of the Apes might have been the first movie I ever saw in a theater or actually in in a drive-in. Nice. Uh, It actually came out the year before I was born, so I definitely didn't see it in its initial run. But I have surprisingly clear memories of watching this movie in a drive-in when I couldn't have been much older than five or six. Hmm. That would have been right around the time of the short-lived Planet of the Apes TV series, which ran for 14 episodes in 1974. And which I may have actually seen first. That might have been my introduction. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I know my brother and I collected the Topps trading cards based on the TV series. Mm-hmm. I remember those vividly. They had puzzle pictures on the back. You had to collect them and form the picture. Those are probably worth some money. Probably not. No. And I don't think we still have them. So <laughs> Right up there with the Beanie Babies. But yeah, this is a very early formative experience for me, seeing this movie. God only knows how much of it I understood. Probably very little of it. Right. What do you what do you actually know about this movie? Um, I mean, so I know the general story just from cultural osmosis, the seminal Simpsons episode where <laughs> Troy McClure does the musical, uh, and the you know, the whole Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas, that whole thing. Um, but I so I know the twist ending, which is that they are actually on planet Earth. Spoiler alert. That <laughs> they are not in some foreign land run by uh, apes that it is the planet earth the planet of the apes is us right so, yeah yeah okay do you know anything else about the plot though or just the ending um i know that they the the apes are the intelligent life force and that they i think imprison the humans on the planet because they think that they're inferior but that's about it Okay. I know it stars Charlton Heston, who I love from the Ten Commandments. Yeah, you have a Ten Commandments fetish. I have a Ten Commandments fetish. I just, I've watched that movie since childhood, and it's just <laughs> an annual tradition for me. But, you know, he's not... Not really politically no, your cup not, of tea. No, not politically my cup of tea. But for the Ten Commandments, I, I do have a <laughs> small space in my heart for Charlton Heston. Okay, so as I said, this film opened in uh, 1968. It, it had its premiere in February of 1968. It went into wide release on April 3rd, which, of course, was the day before Martin Luther King mm. was assassinated. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you remember on Mad Men, the episode dealing with MLK's assassination, mm-hmm. Don Draper, instead of going to the vigil in Central Park, took his to son Bobby to go apes. see Planet yeah. of the Apes. Okay, yes. <laughs> so I think, I mean, there's going to be a lot of stuff politically to talk about 
with this film. Okay. So I think just bearing in mind what 1968 and what the entire <laughs> 60s had been like when this film premiered is probably worthwhile. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had a entire decade of race riots happening all over the country. Mm-hmm. We had the assassinations. This was probably the low point of, Vietnam. of the Vietnam War. The Tet Offensive had just happened in uh, January of 1968. Mm-hmm. So the country was a bit of a mess when this movie opened, and the timing probably could not have been better for it. Okay. The director was Franklin J. Schaffner, who directed Patton, Boys from Brazil, Nicholas and Alexandra. It's he, I, For some reason, it's one of those names that just doesn't seem to... Come up often. Right. Yeah. It was based kind of loosely on Pierre Boulle's novel, which is everywhere except here is translated as Monkey Planet. <laughs> okay. In the U.S., it is translated as Planet of the Apes. <laughs> and it was written by Rod Serling of The Twilight Zone. Zone. Okay. Mm-hmm. And Michael Wilson, who was an interesting figure. He was an Oscar-winning screenwriter for 1951's A Place in the Sun. But shortly after that, he was blacklisted as an uncooperative witness to the House on american Activities Committee. Oh. Um, so his next <laughs> many films he worked on uncredited, including Salt of the Earth, Bridge on the River Kwai, which is also based on a Pierre Boulle novel, uh, Friendly Persuasion, and Lawrence of Arabia. Hmm. And this is a total side note, but just as I research these things, I come across these people, and I think it's worth talking about them. So Friendly Persuasion was Oscar-nominated, but it's one of the rare movies in Oscar history that was attributed to no writer at all. Wow. So the screenwriter was nominated, uh, the screenplay was nominated, but no writer was listed. Because he was blacklisted. Because Wilson had been blacklisted, he could not, his name could not be on it, and the WGA interfered when the producers tried to put someone else's Mm -hmm. name on it, so it just, it was submitted with no author whatsoever. Um, Was there any ever, like, retroactive correction of that? Yeah, those those have, I think they've all been corrected at this point for the most part. Okay. The screenplay for Bridge on the River Kwai won the Oscar, but the only writer listed was Pierre Boulle, who had written the novel in French and who spoke no English. (laughs) So the screenplay for Bridge on the River Kwai, which was written in English, Mm -hmm. Pierre Boulle got the Oscar for that one. This was a troubling time in American cinematic history. Don't we feel safer? (laughs) So I think we'll see a little of that influence in the screenplay for Planet of the Apes. I think we'll see some of the sort of Cold War, Mm -hmm. fear of nuclear annihilation, all of that is in there. But I think probably most of what we're going to end up talking about is going to have to do with race. And I don't want to prejudice you going into it. I don't, one way or the other, so I don't want to get into it now. But I think it's safe to say that probably that topic is going to come up. Probably. Okay, so the film was a massive hit, obviously. It inspired four sequels very rapidly. Four sequels were released between 1970 and 1973. Wow. That is, of course, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, and Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Was that a situation of diminishing returns, or were they... There is some... I mean, there's definitely interesting stuff happening Mm -hmm. in those later movies, but the general consensus is that the quality diminishes... And certainly the budget seemed to get cut back (laughs) with every subsequent film. The apes look worse and worse. The apes look worse and worse as we go on. 
the scale and the special effect, everything just kind of gets toned down. Mm. Um, in fact, beginning with, and we'll talk about all of this later on, but beginning with the third film, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, uh, that involves apes coming back to contemporary U.S. Mm-hmm. time travel. So they sure. come, come back to... Because that's what happened. Of course. <laughs> And no doubt part of that was a budget concern. <laughs> that it's like, it's just easier to film. <laughs> we can't do the future anymore. In, we can't right, afford the future. The 1970s. Yeah. yeah. Or something near, near future. Mm-hmm. I think those were supposed to be. And then, of course, I mentioned the TV series. There was a cartoon series that premiered in 1975. And then there have been the remakes. Have you seen any of the remakes? So you have never seen... Any I've of the Planet of the Apes movies. Any of the Planet of the Apes okay. movies. Okay, so Tim Burton did a really. In, I guess, oh yeah, because Helena was in that one. Right. I remember. Yep. Yes, I remember. So that. Tim Burton did an unsuccessful attempt to reboot this franchise in two thousand one. Mm-hmm. Pretty much bombed. Everyone pretty much hated it. I wouldn't That's, have picked Tim Burton to do Planet no. of, even not having seen. It, I just wouldn't have picked him for Nor that. Nor would I have picked Marky Mark to That's play the Charlton Heston. He should not role. have a job. Period. <laughs> really shouldn't have a job like pretty odious person and he just seems to everybody seems to forgive that and i do not understand (laughs) threw rocks at black children physically assaulted an asian man but okay sure (laughs) (laughs) he can work got it i just think he should not have a job he should he should not be able to be anywhere yeah i I'd, i'd agree with that i do not think his talents warrant no one's talents really but particularly his warrant us you know, turning a blind eye to... Uh, I'm trying to think now if there's any Mark Wahlberg movies on our list. Uh, Boogie, I think Boogie Nights is on our list. Uh, we should Boogie probably Nights. watch that one of mm-hmm. these days. Sure. Then we can talk about how terrible he is. So that'll be fine. We, yeah. all, we all look forward to that. <laughs> and then there is the ne- the new and far more successful reboot trilogy mm-hmm. um, that began in 2011, which was, what? Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and War for the Planet of the Apes. Primarily starring Andy Serkis as the chimpanzee mm. Caesar, mm-hmm. who kind of leads the apes into rebellion. He's and supposed to be amazing, right? I feel like he he is really yeah. good in those movies. And I actually like those movies, for the most part. They completely abandon any political subtext. Because mm. we're post-racial. Yeah, exactly. Well, we were, and now we're... We're not anymore. I don't know what the fuck so we we're are. So po- we're post-post-racial. We're, we're post-humanity. I don't know where we are. <laughs> I think that is exactly the right spirit <laughs> in which to watch Planet of the Apes. Can't help thinking that somewhere in the universe there has to be something better than man. Has to be. The words are Charlton Heston's. Get out a last signal. Go Earth, and we've landed. The world he finds out in the galaxy will challenge every idea you've ever had of civilization. A planet where man is the lowest order of living things, and the superior beings are apes. They build the cities, make the laws, the gods, and control the guns that hunt a race of lowly, terrified humans who run wild in the jungles, are caged in the prisons, and stuffed in the museums. 20th Century Fox transforms the motion picture screen into Planet of the Apes. Yes, 
Bowles' finest novel since Bridge on the River Kwai. There's a world gone insane, an upside-down civilization that could not be real. Yes, a world of madness and terror. Man has no understanding. He can be taught a few simple tricks, nothing more. You did it. You cut up his brain, you bloody baboon! And we're back. During the break, Nikki and I watched Planet of the Apes. Nikki, I guess the first thing I'm wondering is, was this what you were expecting? Yes. Was it? Yeah. Was it the kind of movie you were expecting? Yes. Because I didn't know if you would expect it to be more of like an action movie or more of a I see. sci-fi movie. Because mm-hmm. even even when I, and I hadn't seen it in many years, it was slower than I remembered it. Mm-hmm. It was more talky than I remembered it. I think when I remember my first viewing as a child, I remember the action sequences, mm-hmm. but there actually weren't that many. No. It wasn't that kind of movie at all. No. There were like small scuffles here and there. Right. But yeah. But it... It's almost more like a play. It's a, it's very mm-hmm. talky. Mm-hmm. It's just a series of scenes and almost philosophical conversations. Um, so I wondered what you were what you were had been expecting going into it. Yeah, I mean, I knew that the sort of the meat of the movie was Heston's character sort of trying to prove his humanity and, as such, his superiority. Really, so I wasn't envisioning big action okay. movie. Because um, the new ones mm-hmm. are action movies. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very heavy on the stunt pieces and all of that. That's probably a sign of the times, though. Like yeah. people are just sort of mm-hmm. expecting that. Yeah. Okay. Well, what did you think? You know, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure if I liked it or not. I. I think I liked it. Okay. But then I think I didn't like it. <laughs> it's weird. So it felt it did feel like watching a two hour long Twilight Zone episode. Yes. It very much had that feel to it. Yeah. Um and I apologize, listeners, I'm I'm struggling with a little cold here, so I'm gonna be sucking snot a lot during this episode. Um <laughs> so that piece I, I liked. I liked the sort of mood of it. Mm-hmm. Um during you know, our viewing, I asked you if you knew who had done the score. I thought yeah. the score was really Fantastic experimental powerful. score by Jerry Goldsmith. Um, this, like, m- mixing of ape sounds in with this very, like, s- sort of, uh, it's not techno, really, but it's just a uh, It was experience. I, I read a little bit that said he was using, like, brass instruments, but without the mouthpiece, mm. like, blowing in it, like, trying different things mm-hmm. to make different sort of and discordant it almost, it sounds like on the soundtrack. Sounds, but mm-hmm. it was very sort of, it punctuated the scenes in a way that I yeah. thought was really powerful. But then when we get to sort of the themes of it or what it was trying to do, I don't know that I, I like it for that. Uh-huh. But if it was just sort of on its face... A extended Twilight Zone episode, and they weren't trying to sort of do all these other things. I think I would like it. Okay. All right. Well, let's so let's talk about the story. Okay. So we have these three astronauts. Four. Four, four astronauts <laughs> right. who are on this traveling at light speed. Right. Apparently, which they're is, six months in a deep space mission. 
um, which has apparently been 700 years Earth right, time. Right, 700 years has passed back on Earth. Um, and, you know, just as Moses shepherded his people across the Red Sea, Captain Taylor is <laughs> uh, getting his so, folks to, you know, the, the final frontier. So you're saying he's still Moses? Charlton Heston is he, still, he's still Moses? He's, he, that sort of Moses cadence is very much so there. And we get a good sort of idea about, you know, what he thinks of his fellow man. He does not think of them too highly. He, he's doing this sort of captain's log thing when we open on him. Uh-huh. And he talks about that, you know, he's leaving the 20th century with no regrets and asking questions about, you know, given that 700 years have passed on Earth, you know, is man still making war with his brother? Right. Our neighbors still watching, you know, their neighbor's children their neighbor's starving. Children starving, right. Um, so, you know, not an optimistic gentleman, not particularly enamored with humankind. Right. And a little and a little later the the three astronauts that survive the landing mm-hmm. there's a little discussion about why all three of them are there mm-hmm. and uh Landon who's the other white astronaut mm-hmm. Taylor says you know you're just the overachiever you're the all-american hero of course you signed glory. up you're in yeah. it for the glory right you want to be immortalized exactly and then Dodge who's the black astronaut is the scientist, Landon says of him, he'd jump into a volcano if he thought he could learn something right. that had never been learned before. Right. And then Taylor is just this misanthrope, right. apparently. He just wanted to get away from Earth. Right. He says he he went because he thought somewhere there has to be something better mm-hmm. than man. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't thought about the Moses thing, but actually this discussion does happen in this really desert. long yeah. trek through the desert. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, mm-hmm. but it is sort of this search for the promised land right. they're on their they're on this endless trek through the desert okay but i'm skipping ahead of it a little bit so first the ship Right, the ship crashes. Crashes. Uh, all all the crew is in cryo sleep. Is that I believe yeah, that's what's called? Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the ship crashes. Uh, the crewmen awake and they find that the one female crew member, Stuart, yeah, had passed away a year or so ago. Right, something went wrong with her cryo sleep, and she she's basically a mummified <laughs> sort of corpse inside her um, pod. Uh huh. And no one really weeps for her so much and we find out later that she was essentially supposed to be you know a breeding sort of right he says she was the, supposed to be the new eve yeah she was supposed to be the new eve and we were all going to sort of you know oh god i wrote it down over there because it was terrible yeah he says something about you know with our eager participation or something right kind of creepy like that so they were basically gonna you know repopulate this or populate this planet with her which, so, by the way, is not how you do that. If you want to, you know, plan for population, you send a bunch of women <laughs> and one man. No, you just you don't send, send three Eve. men with one woman. Because Eve births all men. That doesn't work. <laughs> but anyway. Right. So when we land, uh, we get a glimpse of the controls and we see that the year is 3978. Back on Earth, right. Three, Back on Earth. 3,000 years of right. past or 2,000 years of past. So they land on this what they think at that moment is an unknown planet. Yeah. And they go on this trek through the desert trying to find some sort of sign of life or anything. Landon has this moment where he plants this little miniature American flag. Yeah. And Heston has uh, a really creepy laugh about that one. Yeah, it's a weird moment because yeah. it does seem like he's almost crazy right. at that point. Landon is planting the American flag and Taylor just starts laughing. Right. I don't... Because... 
Again, it's that whole American glory thing. Mm. It's that whole kind of manifest destiny sort of thing that he's laughing at. Um, Or I couldn't quite tell if if Landon was planting that flag as a memorial for Stuart. Mm, that's a good point. And that's what Taylor was like. La- I don't know. It's a weird yeah, moment. That is a strange moment. It could have been both. So they come upon some weeds and, you know, this sign of life and they immediately rip it out of the ground. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I thought of that. They, the first thing they do is, ki- it's is like kill the, something. As far as they know, it's the only sign of life right. on this planet. And they rip it out so of the they, ground. So they rip it up, cradle it very kindly, yeah. but they rip it out of the ground. And, and that's their sort of point of hope because, you know, when there's one, there will be others. And so they seek off to find the others. And then they come across these very odd scarecrow-like figures. Mm-hmm. But don't really investigate those so much because then they see a waterfall and a pool. Right. Taylor actually almost literally yeah. says, fuck the scarecrows. Right. I'm going to go Which is like, check out the water. That's probably something you should be paying attention to. Yeah. Those were obviously created. Just completely ignoring the warning <laughs> signs. Um, so then they have this really sort of odd homoerotic moment in this uh, waterfall pool. Yeah. There's this odd shot where, so they're all swimming around in the pool naked. And then they realize that someone is has taken their clothes and their equipment yeah. offshore. So they, they get onto the shore. They see footprints in the sand. And... Uh, Taylor is standing up, and then Landon and Dodge sort of bend down, and so the camera is on Charlton Heston's head and torso, and you just see the heads of Landon and Dodge go down as if to service him. It's a very oddly shot <laughs> I, I scene. I did not notice that shot. It I believe you that it's very odd. I did not notice that. <laughs> just, so then it's like this idea of man, when left to their own devices and without a woman, it doesn't take long for things to take that sort of turn. No, I don't. I mean, you're mm-hmm. you're seeing a level there I didn't see. You didn't That's, notice that shot? No, I didn't. Because it it was like the quintessential sort of you know fellatio shot where you you keep the camera on the man and his torso and then you just yeah. see the head go down. So they're both their heads are going down and we're just looking at Heston. Okay. Um. So it was odd. But anyway, they realize it's some sort of... I mean, that that whole thing is, and again, we come back to your biblical imagery. It's like, that is this sort of like Garden of Eden. Right. Return to the Garden right. of Eden. Right. Return to nature. Where we're casting off our garbs of civilization, mm-hmm. right? They're stripped of their uniforms. They're stripped of their insignia. They lose all their technology. Mm-hmm. They had all these their kits, their scientific kits and things. They lose all of that. And right. they're stripped naked mm-hmm. back to this primordial state. Right. This very primitive state. Right. Of innocence or savagery or, I mean, there's a, a lot of different ways With, that yeah. goes. Yeah. So, yes, because all these tribe of... What Wildlings. Wildlings. <laughs> <laughs> Comes and steals their shit. And so they chase the wildlings into a cornfield. The crew sort of sees for the first time fellow humans, but these there's something a little bit off about them. Like, they are not talking, and I think it's uh, Heston's character who says, you know, I think that they're mute. Yeah. And we see them trying to open fruit with rocks, and the way that they're moving, and the way that they're sort of interacting with each other, they do seem primitive and animalistic. Animalistic, right. And then you hear the roar. Wait, the- wait, before that, there's a, there's a line here. Oh, dear. 
Oh, um, yeah. Where Heston's looking at this tribe of primitive humans and says... If this is the he best says, they've if got. This is, if this is the best they've got, in six months we'll be running this planet. Right. Spoken like a white man from America. Yeah. Yeah. It's... <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's there's a line just like that in Columbus's mm. journals. Mm. I think it, it's how Howard Zinn opens people's history mm-hmm. of the United States. Where Columbus says, you know, the people are primitive and very peaceful and very trusting. And with 50 armed men, I could enslave them yep. all. Yep. Columbus says that's his first thought on right. reaching the new Is world. Is conquering. Yeah. And hierarchy and power. Yeah. So, yes. Then we hear the horses and the roar. Right. And, the... and uh, that's when we get our first shot of the apes. Yeah. On horseback. Obviously engaging in what is a fairly regular event of hunting these humans. Did this sequence evoke anything for you? You know, it was subtle. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, that was very much sort of, you know, hunting down of fugitive slaves and hunting down of... of, Capturing slaves, capturing in, Africa slaves in, in Africa right. in the first place, and then hunting of, of you know fugitive slaves. Slave. Roots, Roots was still about eight years away okay. for, but those scenes, yes, would have if if the order were reversed, I think people would have made that association more clearly mm-hmm. than they did. Yeah, um, that that was a slave hunt. That mm-hmm. That's what that was. It very much evoked that, you know, catching the humans in nets and shooting them. So we see that Landon uh, falls off of a cliff, hits his head, and he's captured. Yeah. Dodge is shot and is captured. And then... Dodge is killed. Well, yes, yes. Dodge, Dodge is, is killed. Dodge is outright killed. Yes, Dodge Because Taylor comes across his body. Yes. And then Taylor is shot in the neck and therefore cannot speak. <laughs> right. Which is convenient. Which is convenient. This was... We'll talk about the book a little bit. And I have not read the book, or if I have, it was so long ago, I don't remember. If I read the book, I read it as a kid, and I probably read it and was like, this isn't like the movie. (laughs) And then I didn't, you know, pay attention to it. But the book actually does take place on a different planet. Mm -hmm. It's not Earth. It doesn't turn out to be Earth. And the apes speak a different language. Okay. And that's why it's he's not named Taylor in the novel, but the Taylor character can't communicate with them. Mm. So, obviously, when the decision was made to put this on... They needed to speak English. Right. They needed to speak English, and it's a movie, and they weren't going to do it in a foreign language. Right. They needed a reason for Taylor not to be able to communicate with the apes. And that's what they obviously came up with, is that he got shot in the throat. throat. Which makes you temporarily mute, apparently. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, So, yeah, we get, you know, more of this, you know, evocative imagery... Uh, we see them sort of stringing humans up by their feet and, and hog-tied on poles, which, again, is, you know, evocative of sort of lynching imagery. Yeah. We see groups of apes taking pictures with dead humans. Again, there's, you know, there were postcards of yeah. white people lynching and, yeah. and posing with the dead bodies of, of, of black people. And um, it's that it's that safari imagery right. of people, you know, posing for photographs mm-hmm. with their... Their game. Their game. Right. That, which is actually an interesting question. I'm not sure it's answered in the film. Because there's, there's one shot in that sequence where it seems like they have dead bodies... Hanging by their feet. Hanging by their feet, mm-hmm. like meat. Mm-hmm. Do the apes eat humans? I don't know if we know that. We do not get an answer We don't that. see any I sign of that. So. no. But neither do we see signs of the apes gardening. <laughs> so I'm not sure <laughs> what 
this ape society is mm. subsisting on? I do not know. That is a good question. Because there don't seem to be any other animals except for horses. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. It's possible. Okay. So we start to get sort of a, a better idea of what's going on here. There are humans in cages. Yeah. Um, and we meet... Dr. Cornelius? Yeah. Or Dr. Zero we meet first. Dr. Zero. Right. Who's Kim Hunter. Right. So we meet Dr. Zero, and she's speaking with another um, ape doctor, and he makes some comment about the fact that, you know, humans stink and they carry communicable diseases and cause them beasts and everything. So again, we have this sort of very, this language is very reminiscent of how many have spoken about Black people, but even other sort of marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. And we also get the notion that there is inherent hierarchy among the apes. Because yes. they make a comment that Dr. Zayas can't stand chimpanzees. Yeah. So, and they even say something about a quota, that, a quota system that right. had been abolished right. the, between orangutans, chimpanzees. And, right. right. And once we see Dr. Zayas and sort of, sort of his cohort, they are a lighter toned yeah. ape. Um, so then there's, so that's the sort of replication of colorism that you find in a lot of communities of color, that sort of lighter complected people are somehow better than right. darker people just because of their sort of proximity to whiteness, essentially. And then you get, we see the apes hosing down the human prisoners, which again yeah. is very... Prison like, imagery. This is 1968, so people are on the news. What you're seeing yeah. is black bodies being hosed down by the yeah. police officers in the streets. Fire, fire, fire hoses, hoses in the streets. And, mm-hmm. So Dr. Zero meets Taylor for the first time, and she is immediately fascinated with him because he seems to be trying to form words. Right. And, you know, her colleague says, you know, human see, human do, which is... You know, <laughs> yeah, there are... A lot of those looking. Um, that he was just a man trying to act like an ape. Right. And we get the sort of, we get an argument for why the apes consider man to be so dangerous. You know, he eats up his food sources in the forest and then he migrates to our land and eats our crops and so he must be exterminated. So this idea of man as a irresponsible consumer, man as, you know, someone that does not respect the sort of balance of the environment. Right. Which is all true. As essentially this destructive right, force. Right, this destructive, a plague, really. Right. So we also have met Nova, or the woman who comes to be called Nova, mm-hmm. played by Linda Harrison, who Zira gives to Taylor as a present. Right. She obviously has idea of mating this pair to see what happens. Any, any thoughts on Nova? Nova doesn't speak. Nope. And... So... There are three women in this story. Mm-hmm. Dr. Zira is the only one. With any agency or With any, any agency yeah. or even dialogue. Character, yeah. Stuart died before the story even really started. Before she got to be a brood sow. And Nova exists pretty much to be a brood as sow. an object. Right. <laughs> so, who can't speak. Right. Apparently several people, including Raquel Welch, turned down that role. I don't blame them. Uh, yeah, it's not much of a role, certainly on paper and even in the film. Mm-hmm. And then, yes, Linda Harrison was perhaps coincidentally the girlfriend of Richard Zanuck, the head of the studio at the time. So she ended up with this part. So Zira is basically trying to prove that man can be domesticated. Cornelius is trying to prove that... This is Roddy McDowell's character, who is Zira's fiance, Right. And another 
he's an archaeologist, right? That's yes, what he I is. believe that's he's what he is. Sort yes. of anthropologist. And he's trying to prove that ape evolved from a lower order of primate, possibly man, which right. is heresy in the uh, ape community. Right. So yes, you're right. There isn't a lot of action. There's a lot of sort of talking back and forth about you know. Wh- who and what Taylor is and what he is and isn't capable of and what that means for him. Okay, so yeah, so so Taylor's trying to convince Zira that he's actually intelligent and he, you know, he tries to write some stuff in the dirt, but the stuff in the dirt gets crossed out. By Dr. Zayas. By Dr. Zayas, right. And then finally he manages to tell Zira his story. Mm-hmm. On paper, which still somehow doesn't convince them that his story is true. They speculate that perhaps he's some sort of missing link. Right. Between in the evolution from some lower primate to to ape. And then, yes, I think it's after Zaius orders Taylor gelded that he manages to escape and starts sort of running through Ape City. Mm-hmm. Um, he runs through a funeral service, and then he runs through... A museum. Mm-hmm. Where he sees Dodge. On display. On display um, in the exhibit. Right. So he's running from the apes and he gets into basically what looks like sort of the city center area. And basically the whole community is sort of pelting him with objects. <laughs> and uh, they finally capture him and, and sort of string him up in a net. And that's when he is finally able to speak and says those, you know, iconic lines. <laughs> Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. In the way that Charlton <laughs> that Heston can only Charlton say. Heston can do. It's pretty shmarmy. <laughs> um. <laughs> and so everybody is, you know, taken aback because yeah. he can speak. The man has spoken. <laughs> and then we get the trial. The tribunal, the uh, hearing. Which I thought was interesting because it sort of reminded me of the Scopes trial. Yeah. Which was this teacher in Tennessee was being charged for daring to teach the theory of evolution instead of creationism. So this sort of had that same feeling because a lot of what... The apes were essentially arguing that his very... that, That Taylor's very existence was sort of against the divine law... Of the apes. Right. The sacred scriptures. The sacred scriptures. And Taylor was trying to argue science. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was not working. And, you know, basically saying that he had no rights under ape law. And then there was this really cute little moment of a see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil (laughs) moment. Which I thought was cute. Um, But the, the having no rights thing, as several people who've written about this movie have pointed out, that's... It's the Dred Scott yeah. logic. Mm-hmm. It's the, they say this this is a man, so he has no rights under ape law, and therefore no standing in this court. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, that's the Dred Scott argument. Mm-hmm. And Zira says, well, then why is he called the accused? Right. Like, why are you, you know, subjecting him to this law if he has no place within this law? Um, there's a lot of really interesting echoes of... Civil rights. Of civil rights mm-hmm. era stuff. They... Dr. Zayas tries to give him a test to prove that he's intelligent and mm-hmm. can reason. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a culturally biased right. test. Right. They're asking him about the sacred scriptures. And right. he's like, well, I don't know anything about your sacred scriptures. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about your laws. So he fails the test. He fails to prove. I mean, it's basically a literacy test, right. you know, performed during the Jim Crow era. Um they say, well, you you claim you landed with these other intelligent people. Mm-hmm. 
And they so they bring in all the other humans that were rounded up, and there's Landon. But he'd been lobotomized. He'd been lobotomized. He got a McMurphy. Yep. So that doesn't work. Not so much. They at one point during the trial they gag him. Yes. Which again I thought it like there's stuff in this movie that echoes forward because that's echoing forward to the Chicago Seven trial, mm-hmm. the gagging of Bobby Seal. Like there's just a lot of interesting stuff like that there in is. this movie. There is. And then after the trial, Zayas gets Taylor alone and sort of admits that you know you were fucked. You had no chance. Right. I knew the second I saw you what we were going to do with you, mm-hmm. and, you know, I know all about man, and I've been dreading your coming for a long time. And Taylor, you know, once Zayas realizes that Taylor isn't going to sort of give him what he wants, which is, you know, tell me where the other humans are like you, and, you know, when are they coming? Right. Z- um, Zayas's fear is that there's a whole bunch of right. Taylors out there somewhere that are on their way. Right. Right. And so... He orders the guards to take Taylor out, and Taylor screams, you know, you're doing this out of fear, and you're afraid of me, and so this idea of we persecute the things that we're afraid of, Mm -hmm. because we so desperately want to hold on to power and status. So once uh, Zira and Cornelius realize that they are also going to be charged with heresy, they organize to break Taylor out. Yeah. And... Get an underground railroad going. Get an underground railroad going. uh, And help him escape. He brings Nova along. (laughs) Of course. As you would, I guess. Doesn't ask her because she can't answer. Um. No. And in fact, at one point, when they're outside the city, she points over there. She's like, I want to go over there. That's where I live. And he's like, no, no, you have to come with me. It's not safe for you to go over there. He's going to be a loving partner. So she has no agency in this whatsoever. Not at all. So uh, Zira and Cornelius and uh, Zira's nephew. Yeah. Uh, Lucius, is Lucius, I believe. They all escaped to this cave in the Forbidden Zone where Cornelius had found artifacts and fossils that were his proof that primates had evolved. That Right, that, that man once had some right. sort of more advanced civilization. So they're hiding out there. Dr. Zayas finds them pretty quickly because, of course, that's where they would go. Yeah. And he entertains them for a bit. He goes down into the cave and he listens to Cornelius' whole spiel about this proves that, you know, man was here. Here's a baby doll and here is glasses and a pacemaker and all these other things. And Dr. Zayas, again, because he knows it's not a matter of him not knowing. It's that he wants to bury it and not have to sort of address it. He is basically like, yeah, I don't care. Right. Taylor points out, too, there's an interesting point about Dr. Zayas, which is that he is both the minister of science mm-hmm. and the Keeper chief of defender this, yeah. of the faith. Mm-hmm. So that whole separation of church and state thing. That's not a thing. No, not a thing. Yeah, no. And needs to be a thing. Well, it's not a thing in our world either. So, no. <laughs> so eventually they get to the point where... Dr. Zayas is going to let Taylor and Nova go, but he does so with a very sort of ominous warning that, you know, man is a born killer. Mm-hmm. Beware the beast man, for he is the devil's pawn. Right. This is part of, this is part of the, the holy scriptures mm-hmm. of this world. He kills for sport or lust or greed. Yeah. And again, all sort of true. All kind of true. So, sort of hard to argue with. You know. And then he, uh, Taylor and Nova... Ride off into what they think is going to be paradise. 
Well, yeah. Or at least freedom. Yeah. And that's when we get to the sort of surprise ending. Mm-hmm. Where they come across the destroyed Statue of Liberty. Right. And they realize, or Taylor realizes, that he's been on Earth this whole time. Yeah. And that man had destroyed it. And then you get another one of his very corny <laughs> line readings. <laughs> Iconic, legendary, corny. You finally did it. You blew it up. Damn you. Damn you all to hell. And just pounding into the sand and having a, a little tantrum. Uh, there was, I read an interview with Jerry Goldsmith, the composer, mm-hmm. and somebody had asked him why there was no music over that last scene. And he basically said that Charlton Heston was overacting. Enough. That you do right. You, you didn't, didn't. If you put music over that, it would have been terrible because right. he was just ridiculous <laughs> about it. He's like groveling in the sand, pounding. Ugh. Well, he'd had a hard few days. Sure. <laughs> That's Planet of the Apes. That's Planet of the Apes. Okay, so here's the thing, and it, what I think is interesting about this movie is trying to figure out how much of it is intentional Mm -hmm. versus just subconscious Mm -hmm. how much of it is well-intentioned is it a to the extent any of it is intentional is it an anti-racism movie Mm -hmm. is it sort of a racist movie right i mean there's a lot of different ways to approach it um suppose not supposedly this is the story that the producers told Mort abrams and arthur jacobs these were the two producers of the film said that After the opening, Sammy Davis Jr. came up to them and congratulated them on making the best film about black-white relations that he had ever seen. And they didn't know what the fuck he was talking about. (laughs) We just made a movie about AIDS. They had no idea. (laughs) That's interesting. It may have been in Rod Serling's mind. It may have been in Michael Wilson's mind. But it was not... The producers did not know they were making a movie about racial anxieties Mm -hmm. in American contemporary culture. Mm Mm-hmm. They thought they were making a sci-fi movie about apes and men. And that's what, to me, is interesting about this. By the later movies, they had realized that was happening. Right. And they became it became much more deliberate. Mm-hmm. And we can, we can talk about the later movies, but... I mean, I think that, that's interesting because wasn't that the case with um, Romero... Out of the Living Dead, right, right? Where he was like, "I did, I had that's, no intention of that that's being what he said. any sort of, you know, comment on race or mm-hmm. racism in America." And so, the, this idea that they are sort of that oblivious to how powerful certain imagery is, how powerful, like I just don't know. So, taking let's taking the monkey, that is not a neutral right. creature, right? Right. So, like, from, like, the Sambo caricatures, caricaturing black people as monkeys or as apes, there's history there that is not subtle, that permeated the mainstream to the point where I don't know how you don't make that connection in your head. Right, right. Um, And as you said, Rod Serling very well may have, but, you know, for these producers to say that they were sort of totally oblivious to that sort of, and I don't even want to call it subtext because it's, like, barely subtext. (laughs) You know, that, I find that, you know, kind of surprising. That's the thing, is that, and I will say, I mean, obviously when I saw this movie when I was five or six years old or whatever, Mm -hmm. I didn't think of any of that, obviously. Mm -hmm. But it seems like not very many people did. See, I don't, okay. There's, the, the key book, 
on this that everyone references in talking about the analysis of the Planet of the Apes films through a racial lens Mm -hmm. was written by a guy named Eric Green. It is called Planet of the Apes as American Myth, Race, Politics, and Popular Culture. It was written in 1998. Mm. And it was it's considered the the key analysis of these films through a racial lens. Mm-hmm. That's pretty late. That That's late. 30 years after these films came out that somebody sat down and said, hey, there seems to be some interesting race shit happening yeah. in these movies. But again, it's not the first time. So you take a movie like King Kong. That is, that is a very racialized yeah. movie. You They are taking this, you know, black ape out of the jungle and bringing him to civilized white America to be put on display, and then he kidnaps a white woman. And Mm -hmm. that's, you know, that so that is very much so tied into sort of white anxiety about black male sexuality, about the assumed danger of, you know, quote-unquote black invasion. Um, So I just, that's that really surprises me, because, like, even in film... That has been explored before, right. and again, we I, I don't know the intentionality right. behind it, but it's very hard not to see that as. And I and I think there's very clearly related stuff that was very conscious and very deliberate. Mm-hmm. I mean, the as far as it being a product of its era, I mean, I think the disillusionment that Taylor mm-hmm. exemplifies his cynicism. I think this. That's very much a product of its time, very much a product of the Vietnam, Vietnam era. Right. Which is part of that speech with Landon and him sort mm-hmm. of digging at Landon about wanting to be an American hero and sort of go off and serve and right. be, and this idea of being immortalized and, and Taylor's very much like, I have no desire to be immortalized, and which is essentially like, I don't need to go over and fight some war that you know I don't even believe in to be a hero. Right. And so a lot of critics have talked about Taylor as this sort of personification of kind of the loss of American power, the loss of Mm -hmm. American exceptionalism that he's, or at least represents the fear about losing America's place in the world. Mm -hmm. As Eric Green writes, there is a longstanding fear among whites in the U.S. of an exchange of situation, Mm -hmm. a loss of racial dominance. The sense that the racial violence abroad and at home was beyond control had shaken the security of white racial hegemony and led to a self-examination by whites of which the apes films were a part. And he goes on, and other people have made this point too, to talk about what astute, again, intentional or not, but what smart casting Charlton Heston was Mm -hmm. as the symbol of white American power. Um, Green talks about all of these movies that Heston made in the 50s and 60s in which he was kind of the white American hero fighting off a horde of other brown people. You know, he fought hordes of North African Muslims in El Cid. He fought hordes of Chinese in 55 Days at Peking. He fought hordes of Arabs in Khartoum. So he says, by the time Planet of the Apes came out, Houston's repeated appearance as the central hero in films where racialized struggles between white and non-white peoples were coded as struggles between civilization and savagery had deeply encoded Heston's screen persona with the very issues of Western dominance and racial conflict at the heart of the film. Hmm. Functioning as a symbol, the Heston hero's personal identity crisis was doubled and enlarged as a political identity crisis of the West. What do you think of all that? I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, no, if you, I mean, for this film to do what they wanted it to do, you needed an audience surrogate that sort of carried all of that. Right history with him and it would have to be a him because this is a white supremacist patriarchy um and charlton heston is very much that 
I mean, yeah, he's an interesting character because he sort of goes through these sort of archetypes of the American hero in this film where he starts out as a sort of intrepid explorer um, off to claim new land. Then he is victimized by this brutal other, but fights his way out and sort of rides off into the sunset with his gun and his woman by his side like a cowboy. Mm-hmm. And yet still has to confront his failings as part of, you know, the human race and that they had obviously destroyed everything. Right. That they had sort of built to mean, and I mean, it, the fact that it's the Statue of Liberty and this sort of very iconography of American iconography of yeah. um, America as land of largesse, so much so that we can open our doors to everyone and we are the sort of right. safe harbor for everyone. So yeah, I mean, it's, that's, it's an interesting character. Are there any other characters of color other than Dodge? There are not only no other characters of color, there do not even seem to be any other cast members of color. Right. Because I was curious to see whether the gorillas or anything had been played by black people. Mm-hmm. They weren't, as far as anyone That's can interesting. tell. interesting. Um, and a lot of those cast members are uncredited, of course. Right, you don't know. But as far right. as anyone can tell, there were no right. other black cast members except Dodge. Mm-hmm. So then who that... basically has no Nothing. lines. Nothing, right, yeah. He's, yeah. Even the conversation about who they have that, we talked about that conversation about who each of them is it's a conversation between Landon and Taylor it's a conversation between the two white men Dodge is off right He's, like, walking ahead of them a little ways. He's separated from them. He's othered, even in that little Mm -hmm. triumvirate. Mm -hmm. And he has no voice. Right. And so that in and of itself is sort of interesting, particularly in this sort of genre of dystopian films where, until recently, it's gotten a little bit better. But this idea, and sci-fi as well, sci-fi and dystopian films, that there are no black people in the future. Like, that we just weren't there. This is is something... um, (laughs) What the fuck happened to the black people? (laughs) Doc Nama, who I was just reading from talks about in his book that you know all of these visions of the future were just pure white as though that was a natural evolution of how the future was going to go is that all the people of color would be gone right so it's interesting that the only black person in this film is from the past and, and is brought to the future and like you said is pretty much you know non-existent doesn't really have any sort of voice or agency for the film and then dies fairly early on and ends up as and ends hot, up, hot venus ha- ends up as in the museum as hot and hot venus so it's like so those are the so it's just like there's a lot going on and i'm not sure that they know who they're speaking to as filmmakers no i don't think they do and i think that that to me is what's interesting about it is whatever message they intended and god knows serling could be heavy-handed with his messaging mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think it's more interesting just to look at it as this kind of expression of all of the anxieties, mm-hmm. many of which are conflicting and many of which, like, it's just kind of this this cultural artifact that sort of bubbled up right. out of this period of history, this very tumultuous, difficult period mm-hmm. in American history. So I guess when I said at the top, like, I wasn't sure if I liked all of the themes it was explored, I... I respect the attempt, mm-hmm. um, and I, I do think it raises some interesting questions. And again, it was, was sort of odd to have this conversation when we're unsure of if this was even sort of meant to be about... Well, it doesn't matter, ultimately. This sort of allegory of race in America. But I mean, it, I, it is that, whether it was intended I mean, right, to be it is, right. But then it's like, okay, well, how much do you blame the filmmaker? Well, not blame, but how much do you sort of project onto the filmmakers if... You know, they either didn't know or didn't want to know. But I am less of a fan of this sort of black like me sort of thing. I'm like, in order to understand, you know, the struggle of black people in America, in order to understand the brutalities of racism, a white, we have to put a white person in that place 
in order for you to sort of empathize and understand why it's wrong. Right. This is Michael Denzel Smith writing about this movie. Okay. He said the original Planet of the Apes served as sort of a cinematic version of John Howard Griffin's 1961 book Black Like Me, mm-hmm. where Griffin experienced life as a black man by darkening his skin and reported back on his findings. It's a what-if-the-shoe-was-on-the-other-foot type scenario where white men experience the type of discrimination usually reserved for black people. And he goes on to say, though it was intended to show support for black people's fight for human rights, it relies on the racist notion of black people being not fully human, Mm -hmm. choosing monkeys of all animals as stand-ins for black people. It also played into the issues of skin color hierarchy, Mm -hmm. making lighter apes more intelligent than their darker, more uncivilized counterparts. Right. Right. So I think that's that's sort of my... And then... But then the question sort of comes, okay, well then who is this film for? Because black people don't need to see a white person experiencing persecution because we experience... So, you know, is this the movie for the, you know, the quote-unquote white liberal so that you understand and you can empathize? And it, uh, well, this is this is what's fascinating to me about this is that it's, it's both. Mm. And actually, it's for everybody mm-hmm. in a way mm-hmm. because... Um, uh, black scholar Adalufa Nama, writing in his book Black Space, Imagining Race in Science Fiction Film, points out that Planet of the Apes is a favorite of white supremacist organizations. Hmm. As an allegory for the future of American race relations, if whites fail to band together to protect their interests. See, that's the thing. So, right, so this this idea that, you know, and this, this sort of highlights the lie of the denial of white supremacy and sort of state-sanctioned violence, right? Is this... Because the fear at the crux of it is that black people will rise to a position of power and then will be able to act like white people towards white, right? So so they will be able to treat white people the way that white people have treated black people for so long. But then at the same time denying that they're treating black people that way. So, okay, so maybe this is the place to talk about the sequels. Okay. And we'll skip over the second sequel, uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which is a direct sequel. It's, although Charlton Heston is barely in it, but it's, he and over are off, and there's mutant people <laughs> worshipping an atomic bomb and whatever. I, I barely remember that movie, but at the end of that movie, Heston detonates this atomic bomb and blows the planet up. Mm-hmm. So that's the end of the Planet of the Apes. But is it? (laughs) Because the third movie, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Cornelius and Zira travel back in time to contemporary America. Mm -hmm. And they are at first treated like celebrities. as like, oh, talking apes. Um, But then as they tell their story and Zira becomes pregnant, then the fear is that... That future will... That future Mm -hmm. will come true. Mm -hmm. And then they become sort of enemies. Um, The next movie, Conquest, is the interesting one. Because that is... Now now the main character is Caesar, who is the son of Cornelius and Zira. Mm -hmm. He's an intelligent, talking ape in more or less contemporary... It's near future, but more or less contemporary America. And this is the film in which he leads the rebellion Mm -hmm. of the apes. The apes are enslaved in this society there's been some kind of plague or something i don't know i don't remember but basically this is the uprising Mm -hmm. this is the revolution he becomes the leader of the revolution um and again it was very consciously playing on images of black militant yep the black power movement there is 
a riot that was directly taken from the Watts riots, Mm -hmm. that it was sort of a restaging of the Watts riots. Mm -hmm. And then I think the next couple of movies I don't remember very well, but I think then we go into the apes starting to become the dominant. Mm -hmm. Now they're the dominant race, and we're getting into these questions of, are they going to be any better than the humans were? Right. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So again, it is this, it's on the one hand playing on white fears of what the black militant mm. movement could lead to. It's playing to, apparently they, apparently the films were very popular with the same audiences that liked black exploitation films because there was this kind of fantasy element to it. Right. Where it's like they, they recognized what the what the allegory was mm-hmm. and embraced that so it's just all these really interesting levels mm-hmm. that it's working on um i mean eric green's book treats all five films as one text okay and traces a, a pretty convincing i mean i t- have some quibbles with it but traces a pretty convincing argument through it he says when seen as one epic work the ape saga emerges as a liberal allegory of racial conflict mm-hmm. but it was never intended to be that. Mm-hmm. They never intended to make any sequels when they made the first one. It's just that it was a hit, and so they came up. Right. There was no master plan. Honestly, many of these movies are not very good. Mm-hmm. That That's kind of what's interesting about it to me, is that it's just this thing that came sort of naturally out of all of these anxieties and paranoias and different political views and different understandings of racial dynamics. In that way, it's almost kind of a pure expression of like what was going on at the time. Does that make sense? No, it does. And I think, I guess, and maybe that's sort of why I can't decide how I feel about it. Because part of me was like, with things like that, I'm like, okay, well, you go over there and you figure your shit out and then you come back and you talk to me <laughs> when mm. you have weird, <laughs> it's just... I don't need to go through that angst with you as someone sort of standing in the as in these shoes and has lived in America as a black woman. You know, there's a clarity I have that I don't I don't need these sort of thought experiments right. around racism in America. And that's not to say that they don't have value. And that's and again, it, it comes back to the question of like, who are these films for? Right. And I and I agree that there's probably there are you know a number of audiences some intersecting, but. Right. Green says, particularly of Conquest and Battle, he says they were clear examples of science fiction films that pander to white political paranoia and possibly black political fantasy. Mm. So both those things were going on at the Mm -hmm. same time. Yeah, that idea about black fantasy is interesting. Um, And I think we talked a little bit about this when we did Shaft and sort of talked about black exploitation films. Um, And I think it's it's always a little hard for me to wrap my head around that. Well, you have sort of mixed feelings about black exploitation films, too. I do, but I think part of that is because I'm a woman, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because you had sort of Foxy Brown and Coffee and things like that. But for the most part, it was a very male fantasy right? of beating down Whitey and taking his woman. And even those films were a male gaze. Right. Right. And so then this fantasy of black people will rise up and then subjugate white people. Yeah. It's just like, my view is like, I don't want to subjugate white people. I just want to be left the fuck alone. I like, I just want to live in an equitable society. I have no desire to you know persecute anyone. But I do think that it is gendered, maybe. The gendered thing is interesting because in, I think it's 
the last movie, Battle. It might be in Conquest. I don't remember. But there's a moment where Caesar, the revolutionary leader, who's the only ape that has spoken so far, Mm -hmm. is about to kill the white general or leader or whatever he is that has been oppressing and enslaving the apes and everything. And a female ape shouts out the word no. Mm-hmm. Which is the first time another ape speaks, another ape speaks mm-hmm. and stops him from becoming the white man. Becoming the white man, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, this was partially, apparently, a studio ordered rewrite because apparently the they don't want to kill white men. The on ending screen. was more yes. violent than yes. So there's like he's like he's like Malcolm for most of the movie, and then he becomes Martin. Though like Martin right became more end. Malcolm towards the end too. Through the but mm-hmm. through the intervention, the point was of mm-hmm. this female character that's interesting hmm. i think all these movies just prove that men are a problem well yes <laughs> we're a plague and a harbinger of death just leave it to the ladies <laughs> specifically black women if black women can you know rise to a place of equity and justice and everybody else comes along see that's the thing it's like you just got to get the black women right <laughs> and everybody else would be good so what do you, I mean, you you said you're not sure how you feel about it, so what do you actually, in the end, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I enjoyed it just on a very, you know, straight, no reading into it, sci-fi little adventure. Again, I thought it, it very much felt like a Twilight Zone episode. I'm a big fan of Twilight Zone. Um, Charlton Heston is a lot. Um, <laughs> he was a lot as Moses. He is a lot as Taylor. <laughs> Um, you love him as Moses. I do love him as Moses. And again, I don't know what that is. I really... I, you know what? The Ten Commandments thing, though, is really more about Yul Brenner than it's about I, I'm Charles well aware of that, yes. Um, so that's part of it. Because he's just sort of an arrogant dick. Like, he comes back... <laughs> After having seen the burning bush and his hair turns gray and he's got his chin all up in the air. Like, I've seen... Just, okay, dude, get over yourself. Um, (laughs) You got some tablets. Uh, So, if I take it as that, then I think, you know, I thought it was really well done. I thought the score was good. Once we start getting into these what is the film trying to say conversations, Uh that's when I start to sort of have problems with it. And it really does boil down to the whole, like, put the white person in the black person's shoes in order to explain uh, racism and prejudice. And it's just like, okay, well, you're going to lose me there because I'm just not interested in it. See, I I guess I care less about what it was trying to say and more about what it does say just Mm -hmm. sort of as a cultural artifact. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, I I do think that's what it was trying to say to the extent it had any intentionality but i think in actuality it may not be about we feel sorry for black people but we are afraid for white people mm-hmm. i think as seeing it as an expression of white fear, right but then, okay so so then you say that though we are afraid for white people but when you envision a future you envision a future of only white people so i guess what i'm so this sort of fear of extinct in extinction or, or what like apparently you're the people that you're the only people that's left in the end nuclear war you know earth is decimated white people still there mm-hmm. so even in this sort of oh we're going to explore white anxieties about losing our status or or, or the sort of inversion of what they consider to be the you know the natural hierarchy you're still the survivors you're still when we when we're talking about humans in the future we are talking about white people I start to take away points when it's like, okay, we're, we're going to be challenging something here. We're going to be challenging race in America, but the future is white. 
Right. So then you do not get points for for me from that. I'm not. I'm not trying to get you to give it. Points. Okay. Okay. That's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I'm saying it's interesting to me. Whatever they thought they were doing, it's interesting to me what they actually ended up doing, mm-hmm. which is making this movie, which, as you say, has an all-white cast, mm-hmm. except for Dodge. one actor, right? and which is this expression not of racial equality, which might have been what they thought they were doing, but of white fragility. Mm-hmm. That that's the movie they actually ended up making, is this, we are white people and we are terrified mm-hmm. that we are going to lose our position of dominance. Right, but I'm saying, at the same time that you're saying this is a movie about white fragility and white anxiety and our fear of being exterminated or our fear of being usurped, you are also saying... We are the only ones that will survive. So you're sort of having it both ways. You get to play the victim and the victor at the same time. I see what you're saying. Yes. That's So that's my problem with it. That is not a progressive statement to me. No, I'm not saying it is. Mm-hmm. You keep looking at me like I'm trying because to you're make white. an argument. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, I'm just trying to say, I'm trying to explain. So that's sort of what my problem with it is, is that because I, I in some of the things that you read, it was, you know, oh, this is this sort of pro-civil rights, anti- racism film i think it thought it was Mm -hmm. in the same way that black like me Mm -hmm. and other these sort of feel-good movies made by white people assuming the white man's burden Mm -hmm. kind of thing i do think you know to the extent that anybody thought about it i thought i think that's what they thought they were making Mm -hmm. let's show how wrong this is by having this white hero stand in for all of the wrongs perpetrated on black people Mm -hmm. That, to me, I guess what I'm saying is that's the least interesting level to look at it, to me. It's more interesting to see what the film is actually saying that it didn't know it was saying Mm -hmm. about white fears and white fragility and masculinity. Mm -hmm. And then I do think, and if we had time and if there was any way I could get you to do it, like I, I do think it would have been interesting to watch all five films because I think then the path that this franchise takes where, so it sets up the first film, the white guy is the hero, but then by the third film, no, the apes mm-hmm. are the heroes mm-hmm. that are now overthrowing their oppressors who are the white men. Mm-hmm. Like that's interesting just as a path of, for the franchise to take in this period of like, again, these movies came out within five years. It right. was like five movies in five years. Right. Uh, from 68 to 73. But still portraying black people as apes, though. Yes. Okay. There are actual black people in the later movies. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Eric Green sets up, he has a chart in his book about who's the oppressor, who's the oppressed. Mm-hmm. And then in the middle, he has someone he calls the mediators. Mm-hmm. And tracing the path of how those change throughout the film. So in the first film, the apes are the oppressors. White men Mm -hmm. are the oppressed. And the chimpanzees are the mediators. Mm -hmm. And then in, in the later films, those shift. The apes and the men trade places... But you have people of color serving in that mediator role. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't remember the films well enough. I know that, like, in one of them, Caesar's best friend is a black man. Mm-hmm. And I think at one point Caesar even says to him, you of all people should understand why mm-hmm. we're doing this and mm-hmm. why we have to gain power. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff is going on. Yeah, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that. I'm uncomfortable with black people as apes, apes standing in for black people. Well, yes. It's interesting. I'm glad I saw it. I mean, because we talked a little bit about, I don't remember which one this is, uh, probably, was it the Manchurian Candidate episode, the sort of importance of art and art as propaganda. Right. Um, And so films like this, where the question of 
the artist's intention versus the product that was made versus how the product was interpreted and received. And those can all be very different things. And the artist may be telling a truth that they didn't know they were telling that mm-hmm. could undermine, that could be undermining to what the story that they thought they were telling. Mm-hmm. So yeah, again, I'm just left with this sort of this idea of like this statement on anti-racism and pro-civil rights. And yet it's a future of white people exclusively and yet it ends on the myth of the victorious american white man is he victorious uh i mean that's a question sure i mean he's free from his oppressor i guess um ape society still stands right zaius blew up the cave and destroyed all proof of anything that was going to threaten that society Mm. taylor is sent off with his mute (laughs) girlfriend (laughs) To discover that... His home is destroyed. Man really is the harbinger of death. But he sort of knew that. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty down ending from that perspective. I don't, I don't see it as triumphant at all. Maybe not triumphant, but he is there. And Dodge is not. No other black person is there. Right. This is a real downer of an episode. Yeah. Should have just watched the Simpsons episode. Troy Mulcair is actually pretty good casting for Charlton Heston. He's spot on yeah. for Charlton Heston. <laughs> I feel like this movie just bummed you out. It didn't bum me out. You know that saying that's like, after nuclear war, all that's going to be left is cockroaches? Mm-hmm. And it's usually like cockroaches in chair or something or something ridiculous like that. <laughs> I hadn't heard that one, but okay. Um, this is basically all that's going to be left is cockroaches and white people. And so that's a bummer. Yes, it is. So... So, again, you just took us to a real bummer place. Well, I don't know how to Trying not to get out of this episode on a happy note. Well, okay, find a happy note in this film. <laughs> you do that for me. You show me the happy note. Yeah, I can't help you there, really. Yeah, I didn't think you could. Want to watch the other ones? No, I do not. Especially not with Marky Mark. <laughs> well, we wouldn't watch the Marky Mark one. That's You want to get worse than Charlton Heston, you can go to Marky Mark. <laughs> That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week when we watch a modern classic, a film that actually neither Nikia <laughs> nor I has seen, though it costs me a lot to admit that. Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. Will we have milkshake? <laughs> That's a good idea. We should I have milkshakes mil- for that. I'm not a big milkshake person, actually, so I'll have to find something else. But Yeah, I'm not a big Daniel Day-Lewis person, which is He's why I haven't seen this movie. the greatest actor of a generation, isn't he? And I'm a little lukewarm on Paul Thomas Anderson, who is apparently the greatest director of his generation. See? This is why I haven't seen this movie. A lot of greatest. You know, I kept meaning to. I just wasn't in the fucking mood for it. My left my left foot. What are you doing? I don't know. It's some weird thing from Family Guy where he's doing my left foot song. <laughs> I've never even seen that movie. But he's just... <laughs> I'm not even going to put that on the list. I should put that on the list. I don't want to watch my left foot again. That one I have seen. I don't want to watch it again. Okay. <laughs> so this should be fun. We're both really looking forward to this. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not either. <laughs> but we're going to do it. Okay. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, follow us on Twitter at Free Range Critic, leave a review for us on iTunes, or send an email to michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com. In any of those places, we encourage you to suggest a film that Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means making your partner watch movies they really, really don't want to watch. Damn you all the hell. <laughs>
that is a creepy little kind of fantasy that it's like, oh, it's the beautiful woman who can't speak, can't speak. and is basically completely submissive to you. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's some troubling stuff. Yeah. See, the problem with Stuart was if she had lived, she would have spoken and maybe said, I don't want to have all of your babies, <laughs> sirs. With Nova, there's none of that. Right. She's a much better Eve mm-hmm. for the new human race. The silent Eve. In several drafts of the script, Nova was pregnant at the end of the movie, suggesting the continuation of the human race. Mm. But then apparently the executives balked at that idea, fearing that confirmation of sex between Taylor and this more or less animal Mm -hmm. creature would be somehow distasteful. It was already distasteful. (laughs) She's basically a a doll for him. And the way she treated that little baby doll in the cave, it said mama and she threw it to the ground. Well, she was scared of it. Probably not going to be a good mom. (laughs) Just saying. 